So I've been pretty fortunate to know over the years a number of pretty brilliant neuroscientists. And I've also been pretty fortunate to know quite a number of accomplished writers from nonfiction to fiction. My guest today, Lisa Genova, is the first person I've met who is both. She is an astonishingly accomplished neuroscientist with a strong focus on Alzheimer's and cognitive brain function. And at the same time, she's a, an acclaimed fiction writer who wrote a book called Still Alice, which became a massive bestseller, selling millions of copies, was then turned into an Oscar-winning movie with all these A-list stars in it. And that also kicked off a stream of other fiction books. She tends to write books that illuminate people moving through neurological conditions, but they're fiction and they're so beautiful and compelling. And it allows you to step into the experience of other people and families and understand them in an entirely different way. Really, really powerful. She is also an expert in this world of Alzheimer's and the decline of brain function. And for anybody who is in the middle years of their lives, you may be wondering, what do I do to stay as cognitively active and alert and here as possible for anybody who may be a little bit older, you may actually be dealing with problems with yourself or with loved ones or with parents. So we come full circle and dive into that world as well at the end to really explore what happens and what are the things that we might be able to do to help prevent some of this decline and potentially even maybe reverse it or kind of rebuild around it. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Ertube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. I don't 
think I've met yet another neuroscientist novelist. So I don't know if I'm the only one out there doing this. I might be. Yeah, I was always interested in in science and I was good at it. My brain sort of very easily understands math and science. Mm. And I like the idea of studying how we work. Um, how, you know, how does a human being, how's a human being put together? And so I loved learning about anatomy and physiology and biochemistry of anything. So the heart, the kidney, but then it then came along the brain and it's, you know, the heart's a pump, the kidney's a filter, right. kind of basic. Pretty basic stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then it's like, well, now the brain and it was like, this is where you think and desire and remember and want and your personality. Um, this is addiction. This is uh, uh, hunger. Uh, so it was just kind of mind blowing, literally. So that I, I was all in as soon as I studied that. Was that like high schoolish, or was that when you were sort of more college age? Yeah, that was college age. Right, because you ended up at Bates, right? Yes. Studying. Uh, they didn't have a neuroscience major back okay. then, so I'm I'm 48, so I'm dating myself a bit here. But the, it was biology. It was the psychology of biology or the biology of psychology, however you want to think about it. Mm. And so it was an interdisciplinary major. And now it's called neuroscience. So you kind of had to create what you wanted to study <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah. It was the bridge between those two disciplines, really. Um, so you go from there. And did you go immediately to grad school after that? Or did you take time off? Well, I didn't take time off. I worked. Okay. Um, and I worked with the idea that I would go to grad school because that was the plan. I wanted to be a neuroscientist at this point. And to do that, you need a PhD. Got it. Um, but I wanted to work first and just make sure this is a big deal to go into a PhD program is probably yeah. like, you know, five to nine years. So I got a job as a research assistant in a drug addiction lab at Massachusetts General Hospital East. Oh, wow. um, it was really hard work, but it was exciting as well. Um, I love telling folks that in uh, February of 93, the lab down the hall starts celebrating and screaming and hugging. And, you know, neuroscientists aren't usually this motive. And so kind of the whole hallway stops where we were in this old building that used to be um, belonged to the Navy. It was a, a part of the shipyard where the ships would come in. They clean the ships. So the length of this building is massive and there's no walls. So you can see the length. And so all these neuroscientists stop. And it turns out that that group had just isolated the genetic mutation that causes Huntington's disease. Wow. So this historic moment in all of science, you know, I just witnessed it happening. So it was an exciting place to be. For sure. Um, yeah. And so I did that for a year and then went, went to grad school. I mean, what's going on in your mind when you're, you're you're really young at this point, it's sort of like fresh out of school, you're doing this thing, you're really interested, and you see that people who literally you're looking at have just discovered something that will potentially profoundly change the lives of a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I got goosebumps. Um, it's totally inspiring. Again, this neuroscience, is, it's, it was a new field of study, Back in yeah. you know the the nineties, we we still even then didn't have the tools that we have now to look at the underlying causes of neurodegenerative diseases or psychiatric disorders. But it was the possibilities were beginning, and so yeah, to know that this was the beginning of what I hope realistically will soon be a cure for Huntington's disease. Yeah. So at that point, also, I mean, was. The whole idea of neuroplasticity is still relatively new. Was that even in play then? Or was that like the really, really early days of that, if even? Yeah, that was definitely in play then. Okay. I mean, when I was in 
at the beginning of grad school, I, or maybe it was even undergrad, there was this idea that, you know, you can ne- once you have the number of neurons right, you have you in your you brain, yeah. like if you kill any, that's it. You'll never get another new one. And and that's been debunked. We generate new neurons regularly and certain things help that, like exercise. Um, but no, I was working at, as a molecular neurobiologist and, and, and studying drug addiction. So the idea that your brain... You know, whether it's um, a beer or a cigarette, cocaine, um, heroin, if your brain sees it once, it's not addicted. But do it over and over again. Expose the brain to that same substance over and over, and you can become an addict. Well, the substance didn't change. Your brain changed. So that's neuroplasticity. So sometimes it benefits you because you're able to learn new things. And sometimes it can result in something pathological like addiction. Oh, that's really, I never really thought about it that way. Mm. Huh. Um, And I guess some people would be predisposed or not predisposed, depending sort of like how you just arrive also to a certain extent. Yeah. So neuroplasticity is about, you know, so your cells aren't just this like static thing that doesn't, that doesn't change all day long, our cells are changing, and, and what's changing are the constellation of proteins that that um, communicate with each other and, and relay information within the cell and tell it to do this and that. And some of us are born with certain constellation of genes that produce a certain constellation of mm. proteins that make the cells act differently. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so all of the grad work then was around this one area. So it was like focused yes. on the brain, but it was around how it it changes with addictive substances. Yes. Did you think that that would sort of be your, where I, I guess when you stay in it for that long, did you feel like you were, were you genuinely interested in sort of like the addictive side of it? Or were you, did you feel like, because I know this happens so often when you're in grad school, like I'm kind of locked into this path and I need to follow it through because I've got a couple of years in and I can't change gears now because it's going to add another three years to my PhD. Because it seems like, your interest expanded, broadened out so quickly after that. At the time in grad school, I was I I loved all of the other research other folks were, were doing. So I yeah. would attend seminars and think the Alzheimer's research was really cool, yeah. and I I liked the I liked all of it. Anything having to do with the brain, I thought was fascinating and fun. I was definitely a geek, and I wasn't bored by what I was doing. Again, it's the answers. It takes a long time to find answers. And so you have this hypothesis and you do the experiments and you need enough data to get statistical analyses. And and, and you you learn enough that it keeps you going. And it's it's actually, I, I didn't get bored of the addiction world um, and, and still trying to understand, you know, how does, um, for instance, environmental stimuli uh, play a role in addiction? So sort of like Pavlov's dog, right? right. Um, classical conditioning. If you ring the bell and present the stake, the dog salivates eventually to just the bell alone. Well, with addiction, if you are, um, you know, I would, I would inject my rats with cocaine at the same time of day in a special cage with a specific environment and then do that for, I forget how many days or weeks. And then I would present um, just an injection of saline in the same, that special cage time of day and their brains, um, the the genetic expression and proteins that turned on that lit up in parts of their brain, 
um, activated as if I had given them cocaine. That's amazing. So if you think, thanks, it was cool. It was exciting. So what what does that mean? That means if we translate that and look back, like sort of pull back the lens, what does that mean for us? It's like, well, if I'm an addict and I go to rehab and I, I get off the I get off whatever I'm on and then I go back to my neighborhood. I go back to the living room. I go back to the sights, the smells, the sounds that are like that bell tricking the dog to salivate is like the bell for me. My brain is going to light up as if I've just had another hit of cocaine or another beer or a cigarette. And then that primes the brain to say that was good. Do it again. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so fast. I, I'm blown away by, I feel like how much we're learning about the brain and and also probably by what, it, what at least it seems to me, how much more we still don't know. Like how small, like, um, you know, the tip of the iceberg we are sort of like in the context of what I think we'll know 10, 15, 20 years from now. Totally. I, on my way here, I was just reading um, a Neil deGrasse Tyson book. Yeah. And I feel like astrophysicists and neuroscientists <laughs> are like, like they're looking at the vast cosmos and we're zooming in on the molecular you know, neuronal cells. And it's the same kind of things, right? It's like, wow, we're learning so much. And like, man, are we idiots? We know nothing. And it's amazing. But I mean, what you were just describing also was sort of like what you were seeing. When we started the podcast, we were actually before the podcast, we had a video show and the first guest there was Dan Ariely. And one of the reasons why he sort of went into behavioral economics and psychology was when he was 18, he was involved in a really horrific accident that burned like 70 or 80% of his body. And he was in a burn ward for, I think it was three years, if I remember correctly. And they would get every day, the, each person in the ward would get a certain allocation of morphine to get through the day. And he started kind of keeping track of whatever, you know, each time he heard somebody like call for the nurse to get it. And he started realizing that certain people were out, but the nurse would go and give them an injection. And then the person who was in agony would then all of a sudden be much better. And at one point he asked one of the nurses, he's like, I know you couldn't have actually given him morphine because I kind of been tracking it, <laughs> you know? And she's like, it was saline. But it was kind of like the same thing. Yeah. His brain had been trained that when you get the injection, you feel something going into you. The brain was like, okay, this means that I feel better. Right. Um, and whether- And this is part of placebo effect. Right, right. right. And it's like- It's a just, real thing. It's this amazing. Is the psychology of our biology, right? Yeah. So like we tend to think of, you know, sort of what's going on from the neck up in terms of thinking and and feeling as, as separate from, you know, blood and tissue and physiology. Right. And it's, no, thinking is physiology. Emotion is physiology. And it, they all interplay. Yeah. And, and and the whole idea be, behind, you know, like beliefs literally changing your physiology. Because um, a belief is physiology. Right. Exactly. <laughs> because sort of a belief like, is your neurons yeah. firing and, and, you know, whether it's stress, emotion, belief, that all, you know, plays. And, and there yeah. are there are physical interactions in your brain um, between a thought, a belief, an emotion and the stress response in your body. Yeah. Yeah, it's, am it's amazing yeah. how it's all it's just one giant feedback mechanism. Yeah. So you end up completing your PhD, going out into the world. What do you actually do after that? So 
So I thought first I thought I wanted to be a professor. I thought I wanted to be a professor at a small liberal arts college like Bates. Right. And I called around to the various professors I know. I'm like, so are you tired? Are you thinking <laughs> of retiring anytime soon? You know, you were kind of old when I was there. You know? <laughs> and uh, no, nobody was done. And there were no slots available. And I didn't, you know, again, I, I was married at the time. And, and he was a lawyer in Boston. And we have family in this area. So I didn't want to go off to California, for example. So there were no teaching opportunities. And so it's like, well, I should postdoc, which basically means doing more of what I was yeah, doing right. as a grad student, making just a little bit more money. And again, I just I didn't see any opportunities that were really exciting in, in the Boston area. Um, you know, the guy doing addiction research, Steve Hyman, he had gone to Bethesda, Maryland at the NIH. So I, I couldn't continue working for him and, and really wanted to change things up anyway. So weirdly, and I actually don't exactly remember how this all started, but I ended up working as a strategy consultant uh, for biotech, pharmaceutical, and medical device companies at a company called Health Advances. And it was really fun. It wasn't something I intended to do forever mm. or for very long, but it was really fast-paced, which was the opposite of scientific research, and working in teams, which was so exciting and new for me because I'd been working in my own little singular right, silo yeah. for five years. Um, so working in teams to solve problems um, that you couldn't look up on the internet and figure out. So, you know, uh, a company, a biotech company might say, like, we've got a, a compound that could treat liver failure or kidney failure, which one should we put it in for clinical trials? Huh. Um, so sometimes I was working on neuroscience related projects and other times I wasn't. And I liked I liked it. It was exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like uh, just keeps letting you test and test out different expressions of your interest. Um, at the same time in the background, I guess that would the timing be um, right around that window? And I guess maybe through your PhD too, you notice your grandma is actually starting to be diagnosed with, with some brain problems. Yeah. So I think she was diagnosed just as I finished my PhD, um, but she'd certainly been experiencing memory issues for, you know, in retrospect, probably a decade. Yeah. So she was diagnosed um, when she was 85. And I think for, you know, many years before then, and I, again, I think we can trace it back to about 10 years before then, um, she'd started becoming forgetful. So she'd leave the keys in the door and not be able to find the keys. She'd leave the the tea kettle on the burner and it would be whistling and she wouldn't respond to or think about, well, what is that sound? Or what is that sound? Not be able to figure it out. Couldn't handle the checkbook anymore. So my dad took over that responsibility. But we all just assumed that this was a normal part of normal aging. Like, well, Nana's just getting old. This is just what that looks like. And so I think there was a certain amount of well, that's a misconception that the general public has. And it was a bit of denial because, you know, nobody wants to see Alzheimer's happen to someone you love. So we were, you know, her nine children who were all married and the grandkids, we, most of us live locally and we saw her regularly. And I mean, we kind of saw what was going on, but we didn't register it until she ended up walking to the bowling alley from her house in the middle of the night, thinking mm. it was the middle of the day, wondering why her bowling team wasn't there. And like, calling people. And it was, that was when my family was sort of like, well, wait a minute, that's really strange. How come she didn't know it was the middle of the night right, and what's yeah. going on? And so got her evaluated and it was Alzheimer's. Yeah. Were you close with her? Yeah. Yeah. Very. So we grew up in the same town. My grandfather died when I was seven. So she was 
living alone for a really long time. Um, but my brother and I used to sleep over there um, a lot, if not every weekend, I can't really remember, but we were there a, a lot and um, I loved her. She was fun, really smart. I think she had, her education only went up to sixth grade or eighth grade. Um, her parents spoke no English, um, Italian immigrants, mm. um, but really smart lady and fun and adventurous and, you know, was on the bullying team and swam every day and was traveling and loved her family. We all loved her. Yeah. Yeah. So as as you're seeing what's happening with your grandma and once it hits a point where you're like, you know, this is not just the natural process of aging. There's actually some, there's a disease state happening here. And at the same time, you know, you're studying and, and you're coming out of this world of really geeking out and trying to understand the brain and what's happening. Were you at any point sort of, you know, like in, in those earlier times, especially sort of like, maybe let me start to actually take a look at this. Um, or did that happen later on? No, it was during that time. So yeah. when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, my, you know, I'm a grandkid, so none of this is my responsibility, but I'm around. Yeah. And so, you know, my aunts and uncles and my parents, and but especially my aunts, they really sort of rolled up their sleeves and like, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? And ultimately my aunt Mary became, became her full-time caregiver. So she and my uncle moved into my grandmother's house and my Aunt Mary cared for her for four years until my grandmother died. Um, but I'm the neuroscientist geek in this right. family. And like, you know, it's going to be, yeah, I was, it, I was so ready to figure this out. Like, okay, let me read everything I can about Alzheimer's and, you know, I'll be able to help us figure out how to, you know, best care for her and what treatments are out there and what's going on. And so, yeah, I, I really dug into the literature. So I read the scientific research papers first, which is like the most useless piece of information for my family, but I, being the geek, really loved it. So I got up to speed on the, you know, the current understanding of the molecular neurobiology of Alzheimer's. And then I read, you know, the textbooks, the clinical management, um, you know, what, how this disease is treated and managed. And then I read the, the self-help, how to care for books. So like the 36 hour day is the most common one people know about. And and that that one in particular and books like it were helpful in terms of how to be a good caregiver, and um, and 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 so that information I passed along to my family. But for me, I was left really restless. Like the more I learned, the more frustrated I got because, and as I, it took a while to figure it out. But what was bothering me was that everything I read at the time was written from the perspective of an outsider hmm. looking in. So everything written about Alzheimer's was written by someone who didn't have Alzheimer's, which kind of makes sense because people who are in the throes of Alzheimer's aren't right. you know, yeah. able to self-reflect and understand what's going on. But not at the beginning of Alzheimer's, at least. And But at the time, I was like, well, there's nothing here written by the perspective of the person with it. And what why, why was that important? Well, it's, I felt so much sympathy for my grandmother and us. Like I felt so bad for her. This is like really smart woman who had this, you know, worked hard her whole life and created this beautiful big family. She didn't know who any of us were. Like all that, all the ways that we were connected were severed for her. She s continued to stay sort of lovely to be around and just enjoyed our company, but we were all strangers. She thought my Aunt Mary was a homeless woman who mm. she'd um, just let stay with her. But so I had enormous sympathy. I felt bad for her and I felt, you know, frustrated and heartbroken and embarrassed and, and confused by what was going on with her. 
Um, but I didn't feel with her. Mm. And that's empathy. I didn't know how to feel with my grandmother. I didn't know how to be comfortable with her Alzheimer's. I didn't know what it felt like to be her. Um, and so, and I couldn't find the that sort of perspective in anything that I read. And so this was, you know, it was about the time I was a strategy consultant for biotech. I was thinking, well, fiction is a place where you can explore empathy. That's where you get to walk in someone else's shoes. And th at the time, there was no good book about a person with Alzheimer's told from her perspective. Um, I thought, well, someday I'll write a novel about a woman with Alzheimer's and then I'll be able to figure this out. Hmm. What makes you feel like you're the person who would be the writer of that book? Well, there's zero arrogance in this. Like I, I didn't like quit. I didn't like quit my job and think, well, now I'm going to write the novel that's going to like change the world, uh, world's ability to understand this disease from sort of the heart space instead of the head space. And um, no, I thought I would do this, you know, long after my grandmother died, and you know, after I'm done working and I'm retired, and there's like, like no risk, and it's just kind of a personal. Right. So this is like a later quest. in life thing. Yeah, this is so, just you know someday. what? I'd really like yeah. to understand this from a point of view of empathy, and I don't have that now. But life is moving so fast. Um, you know, I've got this job and and things to do. Like, I'll do it some point. Yeah. Yeah. What changes then, which makes it like that point happen? Yeah. So that was probably, that was somewhere in the late nineties that I had the idea for the book. Um, in 2000, my daughter was born and I quit my job to be home with her for anywhere from six months to a year was the plan. Cause I'd been working like 60, 70 hours a week right. and traveling. And I just didn't want to start her out that way. So I was home with a new baby and my marriage started to unravel. And this is the guy I'd been with since I was 18, mm. and he'd been my best friend, and and uh, and nothing specific happened. I mean, in retrospect, and so I just I went to his third wedding a couple of weeks ago, so mm. we're still good friends, which is lovely. Um, nothing happened. It just it he just started not wanting to be in this life that he suddenly found himself in. I think is what what happened. Um, and I don't mean to put blame on him, but I think that like that's kind of how it started. So um, I didn't go back to work because I was just sort of paralyzed in fear of sort of my life seemed to sort of be disassembling and I didn't want to leave. I don't know. I just didn't go back to work. I stayed home. And then when our daughter was three, uh, we were separated. And then um, just as she turned four or just before she turned four, we got divorced so now I'm suddenly a divorced, unemployed single mom and the obvious thing to do. And I felt really, um, I felt ashamed. I felt like I'd failed. Um, I felt heartbroken over the loss of this relationship. Um, I felt unacceptable. Mm. Um, my parents were married. I grew up Catholic. I just felt like this is not how this was supposed to go. Um, and so like the the quickest way to feeling acceptable again would have been to go back to doing something I was trained and educated to do. So it's a, go get a job at a biotech, go back to consulting, go work in a neuroscience lab. Um, but the shakeup, like the sudden derailment of my life, which had been so linear and like tick the boxes, right? Like as you grow up, it's like there's the, there are all these expectations. You'll go to college, you'll get a job, you'll get married, you'll buy a house, you'll have the kid. Like it was all just going. And then suddenly I'm off the rails. 
And I think that it really gave me a moment to sort of like, okay, you've been, you're off the rails and you want to get back on track, but what track do you want to be on now? Like you actually have a moment to make a choice instead of like just barreling ahead with your head down based on the decision of what, an 18-year-old? Like my whole life was unfolding based on the decision at 18 to be a neuroscientist in some ways. And so I was like, all right, well, well, if you could do, and I remember the question, it was, all right, Lise, if you could do anything you wanted, what would you do? And the answer was, go write that book. Hmm. And I didn't like that answer. Right. I was were like, you even no. Surpri- were like, you like surprised that was the answer? Yeah. And yeah. it was like, well, so in my sort of logical, conscious, analytical, argumentative mind was, no, you can't do that. You don't know how to write a book. You Nothing about that makes sense. You're not going to get paid. You might never get paid. It might be horrible. Like people are going to point and laugh. Like no one's going to, no one's going to approve of that decision. Um, like what will my parents think? It was like, just a horrible idea. And so I kept getting quiet and trying to think of like, okay, what's the next thing I should do? And that it wouldn't leave. Hmm. And it was sort of like, okay, well, if I could do anything I wanted, if I didn't have to care about what anybody thought, like if I didn't have to worry about judgment and if I didn't have to worry about money and that's real, like you've got to pay the bills, but just for a second, like what if it didn't really matter? And it was just inescapable. It was like, go write the book. So uh, I dropped my daughter off at preschool and I went to the Starbucks down the street and, and began writing the book about the woman with Alzheimer's. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 
25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. What was it like when you, like, for the first time, you drop your daughter off and, like, you go to the local coffee shop and you sit down and you're like, okay, I'm starting the book. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I didn't start writing right away. So I, I just sort of, you know, I'm a good, I'm a good learner. I'm a good mm. student. And I continue to like with every book I write with anything I do, it's like being a beginner again is kind of a fun, even though it's scary, it's, mm. it's a fun place to be. Yeah. Um, and so even though I've written many books now, like with each book I begin, I'm like, all right, I'm a beginner again. This is great. Um, and actually, I was told you, I was just listening to your interview with Julia Cameron. Yeah. And l- literally, I've read that book five times. Right. <laughs> um, and I like reading it like, okay, like, because at every age, you're a different person. And so what spoke to me at yeah, 34 completely. is not what speaks to me now at 48. So yeah, I read books on craft. I read The Artist's Way. So I read on writing. I read Writing Down the Bones. Right. All, the, I read all the classics. All yeah. the good ones. And I didn't know what I didn't know, which was awesome. So I didn't know how hard it can be to write a book or how grim it can be to try to get a publisher. Like, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know any other writers. And I was doing research. So I know how to do that. And the research was like, okay, go, you know, find the neurologist, shadow them, sit in on neuropsych testing, go find people who have Alzheimer's and talk to them. And I came to know 27 people Mm. in the early stages of Alzheimer's who could still talk about what it feels like to have it. I was in touch with them every day for the year and a half that I was writing this, like literally every day by email, um, chat, on the phone. And so the writing came, like I did a lot, I probably researched for like four to six months before I sat down to write. And then I'd sit down to write and um, I'd start with morning pages like Julia Cameron recommends. And that definitely like just sort of gets out the junk and gets you started. Um, But a lot of times I'd freak out. And be like, who am I to be doing this? I'm a neuroscientist. I'm not a writer. This is crazy. Um, well, especially also, I mean, 
Because you made an interesting choice too, right? It, it, you didn't, it would have been a huge thing to say, I'm, I'm going to write a book. It's an even bigger thing to say, like, the book needs to be fiction. I know, I know. It's Which is, I mean, I've written, a, you know, like a handful of books too, but they're, they're all kind of, you know, they're all nonfiction and they're all kind of based on my experience. And, and I definitely have fiction in my head and that will come someday, but I'm a little bit terrified to write that book because in my mind, that's so much harder than just writing what I know yeah, because you've got to, you've got to build the world. You've got to build the characters. You've got to, I mean, so it, it wasn't you just saying, I'm going to write a book. I know a lot about the neuroscience. I've done all the research. You're like, no, this, this actually needs to be fiction, this, which is a whole different thing. I know. And I want to get back to how you think it's harder, but in some ways it's not because oh, I'm writing so? nonfiction right now. I'd be so happy to hear yeah, yeah. that. So, so yeah, I mean, so you're right. For me to write nonfiction wouldn't have been that much of a leap for other people and me to understand because right. I'd written scientific research papers and had those published. People who are academics certainly write nonfiction. I could have sort of worn that neuroscientist hat and put out sort of a scholarly academic treatise on Alzheimer's. I could have you know, focused on one particular person with the disease and written about his or her, her story. I just, again, I had this intuitive hunch that fiction, that story is the place that we human beings are wired mm. to feel like each other. Yeah, and I guess if you were trying to, to find a way in through empathy, that yeah. would have been, that's it. That was it. That yeah. was the yeah. curiosity. That was the you know, what does it feel like to have Alzheimer's from the perspective yeah. of the person with it? And then can I feel with that person, um, not for that person? Yeah. Can I can I inhabit what that experience is like emotionally? Right. So that was the, the plan. So interestingly, I'm writing a nonfiction book now about memory because, you know, <laughs> 10 years into talking about Alzheimer's to people all over the world. And like at the end of any talk I give, ladies, like the women will corner me in the ladies room or people, there'll be people who wait at the end of the book signing line. Like they're all really freaked out, concerned, worried about their memories. So these are people in their 40s, 50s, 60s and 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 rightfully concerned. But so I, basically I'm writing a nonfiction book to help people understand like how we remember and why we forget and what's normal and what's right. not. And I'm finding it much harder than fiction. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's because... And you're right. In fiction, you have to build the whole world and who are these characters and what do they look like and what are their backstories and why do we care and what's the struggle? And and yet for for me, at least maybe this it's because of that's where I sort of started at this point. It's it's there's more play involved in that. It's more I feel more magic and playful and and adventurous writing fiction because hmm. anything is possible and you can create things that that are your invention. Whereas with nonfiction, you got to stick to the facts yeah, yeah. and you got to no, get it sense. right. So I feel, I feel a little bit restrained a little to play in. within this box. Right. Yeah. No, that, that makes total sense now. Um, so you end up sitting down and writing this book, which eventually becomes a book called Still Alice. What, how long did it actually take you from the moment you said, okay, I'm going to start writing and researching to the moment where you're like, you know, I'm pretty sure I have a finished manuscript here. It took a year and a half. Okay, so a year and a half. Then you didn't write this book. And I, if you're not in, in the industry, the general rule is if you're writing a nonfiction book, you sell the proposal first and then you go, you get paid and you write the book. If you're writing fiction, you have to write the whole thing first and then hope and pray somebody wants to publish it. So you get done writing this and then you're like, okay, let me see if somebody wants it. And then what happens? Nobody wanted it. So- 
you know, again, so this was, when was this? <laughs> this was, two thousand. I started the book in 2004, so this was, and it was end of 2004, so this is, you know, summer of, of 2006. Is that right? I have the right year. And I got the literary marketplace guide. I looked up, I, I, you know, I'm such a little geeky scientist. I got the names and addresses of 100 literary agents who, according to this book, might represent mm -hmm. the kind of book I've written. And I sent out my query letters. And I don't know, maybe my query letter just completely sucked. But like, I heard back, you know, at least 50 right, relatively right away, just dear author, no thank you. And, you know, that they don't even give you a whole sheet of paper for this. They right. like give you a third of a sheet of paper, which always cracked me up. Um, Gotten a lot of those letters in yeah. the past. <laughs> so mostly like lots of no's. And then eventually three agents wanted to read the manuscript, which was so exciting. One I've never heard back from. Um, and then the other two said pretty much the same thing, which was, I just think that Alzheimer's is too scary and too depressing and too heavy and that this is fiction and the fiction market's so tough that there just aren't going to be enough people willing to read a book about this subject. And then the, one of those two people said, you know, you've got this PhD in neuroscience. Why did you write fiction? Write a nonfiction book about Alzheimer's and I'll take a look at that. So I totally dead ended. Um, and so now the choice was stick this book in a drawer um, and go back to doing what I was trained and educated to do. Right. Um, and, and, you know, or self-publish it. Um, those were really, I thought, the only two options. And I was very concerned. Like, you know, am I like one of those contestants on American Idol when they show the <laughs> auditions and these people think they can sing and they're completely toned up? I'm like, please. And I asked, you know, some friends who had read the book. I'm like, listen, right. like, do not let me chase this if right. I am toned up. Just tell like, me. Give it to me real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, no, this book's good. Go for it. Give it a little longer if you can. So I self-published in 2007. And I was I was giving myself a year to find a pub, an agent in a publishing house. And if that didn't happen, I would have gone back to. Right. So yeah. you self-publish. You put the book out there. Um, and self-publishing in 2007 is, is a profoundly different game than it is now, by the way. Yeah. No, I was, you know, and coming from science where, like, everything published is peer-reviewed. Right. And you can't just put anything out there. And so I knew the risk of doing this is, like, now I'm putting myself in a bucket of people where, like, Anybody can publish anything. So there's a lot of garbage in the self-published world back then. And not many people did it because of that stigma. Right. Um, but I sort of I sort of looked at it. Well, A, if I had no other choice if I was going to give the book a shot. And B, like, you know, the film industry and the music industry had already gone this path and and legitimized it. Right. And and so I thought, well, you know, if Annie DeFranco can do it, maybe I can do it. So so yeah. Yeah. So you put it out into the world. How are you actually trying to get the? I mean, did you just put it out there and hope people would discover it? No. Or were you actually actively being like, I need to make something happen with this? Yeah, I need to make something happen. You know, my dad always said to my brother and I, anytime we're doing anything, his little mantra was always, work hard, do good, have fun. Mm. And so like anything you do, those three things are awesome. And the do good was always, I always took that as do a good job and make sure you're doing something good, like mm. that it's good yeah. for the world. So work hard, do good, have fun. So yeah, no, this was, I'm going to work hard, do good and have fun with the self-publishing project I was on. So, you know, I was, <laughs> I was uh, selling it out of the trunk of my car on Cape Cod and in the Boston area. Um, the, the retail, the, the major chain retail stores at the time wouldn't take it. So it was all indie bookstores that, that really right. put this on the shelves, which was awesome. 
and um, and just trying to get, you know, interviews. Podcasts weren't a big thing back then, but I was definitely on some. Like I was hustling. Right. So what happens then to take it from self-published book that's out there and you're just hustling to try and sell one copy at a time to you eventually being picked up by a major publisher and this thing becoming a giant phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, by the way, this is 2007. So this was really like as Facebook was just right. starting maybe, but like Social that was not, kind of it was like, you know, yeah. MySpace. And, right. um, but I was like, if you were in a book club and I found you, I'm like, listen, if you, <laughs> if I give you these copies and you read it, will you post something somewhere online, like an Amazon review or on a blog or bloggers were like exciting to me? Like, can right. you help? So I, I actually hired a publicist out of Marblehead, Massachusetts, a, lo- a local group, um, these two women, Kelly and Hall Book Publicity, and um, I hired them for three months. And they got the book into the hands of Beverly Beckham at the Boston Globe, who didn't want to read it, but said she would. She put down her copy of Stephen King, the book she really wanted to read and and read Still Alice, and wrote this amazing review in the Sunday Globe. And that really that changed things. So not only were libraries suddenly ordering it and people were ordering it at Amazon, but the direct link is a woman named Julia Fox Garrison who had written a memoir called Don't Leave Me This Way, originally self-published her book, mm-hmm. and then went on to get a book deal with, I believe, Harper Collins. She wrote into Beverly Beckham, the columnist, said, hey, thanks for portraying a self-published writer in such a positive way. You know, we don't usually get any street cred. Beverly, recognizing that this woman has done what I was trying to do, put us in touch. And so then Julia introduced me to her agent. Her agent agreed to be my agent. And then a few days later, my book was three publishing houses were bidding on it. So it went from nobody would look at this thing to suddenly like there was a there was an auction. I mean, what's that like for you? It's literally like you wake up one day and you're just hustling, trying to sell one copy at a time. And literally a couple of days later there's a bidding war over this thing. Yeah, I mean, there was lots of screaming yeah, and like, I I guess, <laughs> like, like giggling and just like, what is happening? Um, that book eventually comes out and becomes this giant hit. Eventually also gets turned into a big movie um, with big A-list stars in it, award-winning. As you're going along for the ride, like while well, this is all happening, like what's happening in your mind? Like you're, what's happening in your mind? What's happening in your life? And And- I guess the bigger curiosity for me is what's happening in the context of your identity and how it's shifting. Mm. So, okay. So when I was writing the book, when I was doing the research and getting to know all those folks with Alzheimer's, I had this sense. I mean, when you get to, when people who are sort of at the most vulnerable in their lives or who are facing something really threatening and it's a crisis and they've only got so much time or the time that they, you know, are, whether it's so much time to live, as in the case with ALS or with Alzheimer's, it's it's live, but it's also to live with sort of the, yeah. the clarity of knowing who you are. And you're going to give some of that time. They're giving some of that time to me. That's so incredibly humbling to me and like such a privilege. And what it instilled in me was a sense of, like responsibility and and opportunity like if if they if they're giving me an opportunity to help them be seen and heard and to sort of maybe give them a stage to for the world to understand their journey and so it was the idea started when i was doing the research but once it got published by Simon and Schuster and took off in a big way 
I used that as an opportunity to be an advocate mm. and to speak about Alzheimer's and to help for like the book became the vehicle for having a conversation about a topic that people were very reluctant to talk about. And I think conversation fuels social change. And so if we don't have a medical cure for these diseases and disorders and conditions, but can we do something about pulling people back into community mm. who've been excluded because they're other, you know, in this case, it's other due to neurological disease. So part of what was changing in me was stepping up to becoming a voice to to help the world understand what it is like to live with these neurological diseases and disorders. And so then actually, so with, the, with Simon Schuster publishing Still Alice, now I'm earning a living doing this. Right. And it gave me permission to write the next book. So now I, I sort of began the transition from thinking of myself really as a neuroscientist who tried writing a book, tried writing a novel to I'm both. I'm a neuroscientist novelist. And it, it, this day more, I mean, I don't do neuros neuroscience research anymore. I tell stories. Yeah. So I'm more of a storyteller than anything these days. Yeah. but And a storyteller who has the context and the nuance and the depth of understanding of, of how the brain does and doesn't work mm. that allows you a level of inquiry and insight yeah. That somebody who writes that same kind of book just wouldn't have access to. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I believe that's true. It gives me access to asking the right kinds of questions. Um, it gives me access to, again, like when I'm writing the book on ALS, I'm I'm shadowing the chief of neurology at Mass General. Mm -hmm. um, and then the people who have this, again, now I've, I've got, you know, some books, uh, you know, behind me so people know who I am rather than with still Alice I'd have to convince people that I was it, it's okay to trust me with right. your time yeah. now people are like yeah no we want to be part of your next project because we know that your books make a difference Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What a powerful position to be in. I mean, you, you've since then written a series of books that, it's so interesting, right? Because you've written a series of books that in theory, had you listened to those early people who said no, too depressing. Yeah. You know, you never would have written any of these. Um, and yet each one has landed and found a really big, really powerful audience and, and also had that ability to have people step into a place of empathy while also, it's like the book is also a bit of a stealth advocate you know, for whatever that particular thing that that person is struggling with. I mean, the, the last book, Every Note Played, right, which focuses um, on somebody who has ALS, you know, it's sort of like you're, you're talking, you're, you're biting off different, different things that affect the brain and, and the body and the emotions. And it's not just the person, it's everyone around them. Yeah. And sharing it in a way where people, people realize it's upsetting and it's hard and at the same time, it's a part of the human condition. And they, I think they, we want to understand this yeah. um, and, and we want to feel and develop empathy for others. And also, you know, I would, I'm curious whether, you know, when you talk about traumatic brain injury, when you talk about Alzheimer's, when you talk about ALS, when you write these books and they come out, I would have to imagine that people and their families who have these diagnoses come to you and say, it's like, thank you for, for allowing us to be seen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we all want to be seen and heard. And I think that that when you're diagnosed with Huntington's or Alzheimer's, or if you have a kid with autism or any of these, you end up being otherized. And, mm. you know, if, if, I, if you have Alzheimer's and I really don't know anything about Alzheimer's and I see you acting weird or I see that something's going on with you, I'm going to get uncomfortable really fast because I'm not familiar with what's going on. And the quickest way for me to relieve my discomfort is to just look away. I just am not going to deal with whatever's going on with you. And there, I've solved my problem. And I've just unwittingly turned my back on 50 million people worldwide. And so for the folks with Alzheimer's where people look the other way because it's just, you know, that's just easier for them. Um, they really get excluded and marginalized and alienated and isolated. And I find that, you know, I, I think diseases from the neck up, mental illness, psychiatric disorders, like they carry a special sort of, you know, taboo. Um, people are really scared of that because they don't know much about it. And so, you know, these these conditions and diseases are hard enough to to live with without having to be lonely on top of it. Yeah. Right? Like we've all experienced loneliness and it's painful to be disconnected from community, from other human beings is, is like one of the worst kinds of pain. And so so the books, like you use the word stealth and I love that. Like the, there are this story is this little sneaky way in. Um, I'm not asking you to read, you know, the Journal of Neuroscience and I'm not asking you to to, it's it's not homework. It's not like, well, let's, you know, let's learn something really difficult about a difficult topic. It's it's a story. 
it's just a story about a family and this is, you know, and so it's a, it's a, it's a sneaky way in, um, to learn about these difficult topics. And, and so, yeah, you, it, these stories reveal the humanity behind these diseases. It's, you know, I like to say they're about neurological conditions, but they can't be just about that. It's about the human condition. So it's about my life as much as it is about a life with ALS yeah. or Alzheimer's or whatever. And especially in the context of, of Alzheimer's, you did a TED Talk where early in the talk, you, you posed a couple of questions to the audience where you're like, okay, so let's all imagine that we're, you know, like fast forward and we're all 85 years old. You know, 50% of you are going to have some form of Alzheimer's or, or impairment. And then there was sort of like this uncomfortable laughter in the audience. And you're like, you know, if you're laughing now because you're thinking it's the other person, you're the caretaker. Yeah. And then there was even more uncomfortable <laughs> laughter because people are like, oh, oh, like th yeah. there's some, if you live long enough, you know, I think a lot of the assumption is if you live long enough, you're, you're not going to get away with not having to deal with this in some way, shape or form. But then what was really fascinating, and this is what I want to um, dive into a little bit with you also, is you shared a bit more about actually you know, like the physiology of what's really happening in this condition. And it seems like a lot of the assumptions that we made for years, if not generations about like this, it is what it is. There's nothing you can do. Maybe that's changing now. Yeah. Oh, it's at the literature's out there. The data's yeah. out there. It's definitely changing. It's just getting you all to know about it and believe it and, and actually use the information. So yeah, I think, you know, much like we now understand for cancers and heart disease, that there are things you can do, you know, decades before um, you might actually uh, become symptomatic or have either of those things. You know, so we when do you want to start to treat yourself for heart disease? Like when you're lying on a gurney in the middle of a myocardial infarction, or do we want to start to be mindful about your diet and exercise, you know, 30 years before that and maybe keep your cholesterol low and your blood pressure low? Um, so you, you, it's all preventative. Um, do we want to treat cancer at stage four or do we want to detect it before it's even stage one? Like it's preventative. So similarly with Alzheimer's, we're noticing that there are a lot of lifestyle um, ways that we can prevent this disease and or at least tip the scales in our favor um, so that we can prolong the years, you know, when we might become first symptomatic. We know that this disease starts biologically in the brain, symptom free, 10 to 20 years before you have your first symptom. Mm. And, and that the biological processes that are going on, this accumulation of amyloid plaques, doesn't just automatically accumulate with age. It, it fluctuates up and down depending on what we do. So, um, if you are if you have a heart healthy diet, so a Mediterranean diet can cut your risk of Alzheimer's by a third. Um, anything that is good for the heart is going to be good for your. Um, decreasing your risk of Alzheimer's. So we know that high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, diabetes, and smoking, all bad for your heart, also bad for your head. Um, it, you, all of those will increase your risk of Alzheimer's. Um, we know that uh, exercise is phenomenal. It decreases your risk of Alzheimer's anywhere from a third to a half, hmm. aerobic exercise in particular. Um, lots of studies. I mean, every study on exercise shows this. And in animal studies, we've shown that it clears away amyloid plaques better than any pharmaceutical we've seen yet. Do we know what the mechanism is for that? 
Not exactly, no. But we just know like consistently that is insanely powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, The net result of it is a decreased risk for sure. Hmm. And then sleep is massive. So, and the data on this are striking and compelling and and every every uh neuroscientist who studies alzheimer's i know now makes sleep a priority so we know that in slow wave deep sleep your glial cells which are the janitors of your brain they clear away any metabolic debris that accumulated in your brain during the business of being awake so this is like the sewage system of your Mm. brain and that operates while you're in this deep sleep um one of the things that clears away is are these amyloid plaques um, but what happens if you shortchange yourself on sleep? If you're not getting enough slow wave deep sleep, you'll wake up in the morning without all of your trash cleared away, basically. And so you'll have amyloid piled up unnecessarily as you start your day. And if you continue to be sleep deprived, you're bumping yourself up toward um, closer and closer to Alzheimer's. Right. Is there a feedback, a negative feedback loop where the more it builds up, does the does a buildup that isn't cleared away then in turn have an effect on giving you poorer sleep? Yeah. So yeah, it creates fantastic. this really It's like, right, so a lot of our body is this nice negative feedback loop, right. right? Like something happens, it gets turned on, and then that flips the switch and turns the next thing off. With this, you're right. So if you have am- amyloid beta accumulating, that then disrupts the the neural mechanisms that modulate getting to sleep and staying asleep. So you end up with a positive feedback loop that is going to make your situation much worse for your risk of Alzheimer's. Right. And it's interesting when you talk to us about sleep, I think when you talk about exercise, everyone's like, okay, so I haven't really prioritized it, but I know how to do it. I can make it happen. Like I know that if I go and I get on the treadmill or I go ride my bike or I go, you know, like in the woods, whatever it is, I know how to move my body. And I know I, I know how to get my heart rate up. I can wear my heart rate monitor. I can do that for my 30 to 60 minutes a day. Like I can, I have... I have the ability, I have the control to make that happen. Even if it means I have to wake up early, even if it means I have to move things, like I can do that. I can make it happen three to five times a week, right? When you talk about sleep, I feel like we all, there's all this research that comes out, like that's come out over the last decade where people are like, yeah, I get it. It affects everything. It is so important. But along with that, there's this mad sense of frustration of like, but yeah, I've seen all of the blog posts about sleep hygiene and you know, like the 10 things you should do in your bedroom. And, but I, it, it hasn't worked for me. And, like, and I'm so frustrated because I see how important this is, especially to brain health these days, but I can't, I'm, I can't make it happen. And it becomes, I wonder if people kind of walk away from really just spending, investing a huge amount of energy to try and really figure out their sleep because they get really frustrated because it's it's not as straightforward. It's not as easy, it's not as fast as so many other, you know, eating better and moving your body. Right. There's a lot to to the sleep literature. And yeah. um, a guy, a neuroscientist named Matthew Walker yeah. um, has a great book out right yeah. now on sleep. And he, you know, speaks about this quite regularly. But yeah, there's a lot that we understand about diet and exercise and we have cultures built around this, right? You go to the gym, there are gyms, there aren't like, there aren't sleep, friendly sleep clinics for people, I guess. So there's a lot that you can do to improve your, the quality and quantity of sleep. Um, But that's like almost a whole separate conversation. Um, But you're right. Like there are things that you can do to, to help just like, well, if I wear a Fitbit and if I join a gym and if I 
set, set aside time in the day or if I've got my little cute yoga outfit and the like a, the yoga mat. Like if you make it a priority and you have the tools to make it happen, then exercise becomes part of your life. Um, similarly, if you understand the tools you need to get a good night's sleep, and I, I understand that you've tried some of these, we can talk later if you want, but um, there, there are, I, unless something is really sort of, you know, there are ways to figure it out. Um, and so, and the other thing I would say is like, yes, like you, if you read Matthew's book, which is phenomenal, you'll, you'll walk away knowing that sleep affects every right. system in your body and it fights cancer and it, it's essential for mental health and it's going to essential for memory and preventing Alzheimer's and like, okay. But then you also might be panic thinking like, my God, like I've had three children. I didn't sleep for like a decade. Does that mean I'm going to be dead tomorrow? Um, and so, yes, sleep is essential for all of these things. And yet we are remarkably resilient and it does not kill us if we don't get enough sleep, at least not immediately. Right. So, I mean, there's, there are, you know, compensatory mechanisms in our bodies that, that help when we don't get enough of that. Yeah. And I guess that also leads to sort of like the extended part of my original question, which is like, there are things that you can do to help prevent decline of your brain function. If you get to that tipping point mm. where you are symptomatic and you are in, in maybe in the earliest stages of a disease state, but it's there and it's diagnosable, are we at a point now where there are interventions that we can do that might actually hold the potential to reverse some or all of that? It's at least anatomically, it's not known that we can reverse the disease once it's once the tipping point has been reached yeah. and we now have Alzheimer's disease, sort of like your brain on fire with the disease and it's sort of running amok. But I but there are still things you can do to offset the disease that we can't seem to really affect yet. So for example, again with exercise, exercise stim stimulates neurogenesis. So it stimulates the growth of new neurons. So you've got neurons whose functions are being compromised by Alzheimer's disease and being destroyed by Alzheimer's disease. Exercise promotes the growth of new neurons in a mm. part of in the part of the brain called the hippocampus. And this is the place that's attacked first by Alzheimer's. This is the um, part of your brain that's essential for the formation of new memories. Right. So exercise is a phenomenal way to combat the disease, even if you've got it um, present. Learning new things is massive. So we, you know, we began the conversation talking about neuroplasticity and how your brain changes. Your brain changes every time you learn something new. So I'd never been in a room with you before today. And now I have much more information on who Jonathan Fields is and what you look like and where you live. And that information wasn't in my brain until today. So my brain changed. So every time you learn something new, your brain changes. You build new, and what does that mean? You're building new neural connections. So neurons are making connections that associate this and that. So you become um, parts, information about you becomes... Uh, embedded into my brain in a way that's connected to this information and other stuff I know. Mm. Um, so if I have Alzheimer's and parts of my neural, parts of my brain and neural connections are being compromised or destroyed by the disease, if I make other neural connections, mm. I might be able to detour that wreckage. Right. So, so for example, like I'd like to tell people, think of, of your neurons as roads leading somewhere. So say I'm trying to get to City Hall and there's only one road to City Hall 
And now there's a massive car accident on that road and it's impassable. I can't get to City Hall. That's it. There's only one road that I'm done. But if the city paves more roads to City Hall, there can be an accident. They pave 10 roads. There can be an accident on nine of those roads and I can still get there. So likewise, in your brain, if you have more neural connections, you have more ways to dance around any wreckage. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Would, I don't know if there's even an answer to this question, but let's say you do that. So you're, you're, you're activating through multiple pathways, this process of neurogenesis, which lets you literally grow new neurons, new cells in your brain, especially in the area of your brain that you know, like is one of the seats of, of memory. On the one hand, it seems like that would give you the mechanism to now form and keep memories that are happening in real time from this point forward. But if there's stuff that gets lost, that's still lost, right? It is, yeah. yeah. And so Alzheimer's attacks your most recently made memories yeah. and personal history first. So you're, if you know anyone with this, like the longer held memories, the, the, still the stuff you often, learned yeah. when you were a kid is safe from the disease for a while. Interesting. Um, so... You know, your dad or your grandfather or whoever who has this will, you know, still want to listen to music from the 40s and 50s or will still be able to talk about, you know, what his home looked like when he was a kid um, and give you massive amounts of detail. Mm. But we'll forget what you said five minutes ago. So the learning new things is is um, isn't necessarily creating new neurons. It's new neural connections. So right. it's, it's connecting through neurons that already exist and then through exercise, you can actually make more neurons um, in the part of your brain that has to do with remembering what happened five minutes ago. Yeah. Um, so it's this; it can be this constant sort of tidal battle for like how many neurons are being compromised versus how many can still work. And so, yes, you can fight this while you have it um, and try to stay at a, a sort of a plateau. Yeah. Um, and there's a guy I know named Greg O'Brien who has Alzheimer's. He's had it for 10 years now. He's uh, 69, and he wrote a book called On Pluto about this, and he he fights this every day with exercise, continuing to write, so trying to stay cognitively active. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's such a powerful argument, right? So I'm 53, you know, like we're similar-ish age, and um, it's such a powerful full argument to say, okay, now is, the, you know, yes, 10 years would have been better, <laughs> Yeah. But even so, you know, like if now is, there's an, there's such a strong, important reason to be doing all these things, to be moving your body on a regular basis, to be really trying to figure out and dial in your sleep, to be thinking about what you put in your mouth, you know, on any given day. And um, not because you necessarily want to lose weight, not because you necessarily have a marathon you want to run. But if, if you're thinking, well, I kind of, I want to be here for myself and for the people that I love 20, 30, 40 years from now, not just in body, but in mind. And the process of me still being able to do that that far down the road, it starts today. Like it probably started you nearly know, like 10 years ago, but there's still a lot. Like if I start today, that can make a profound difference in the quality of my ability to be um, cognitively there decades from now. Like if you can, if you can remind yourself of that every day. Yeah. You know, I think it's such a powerful motivator yeah. to wake up and actually, and the beautiful thing about what we're talking about here is anyone can do it. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, I, when I talk about this, I'm like, I know you guys all want some like high tech, sexy right. like the device or, the or like yeah. there's some magical pill, but like the magical pill's free. It's called sleep. It's, you know, it's exercise. It's your diet. It's really low tech, not sexy stuff. 
And yet we're used to, we're pretty comfortable with the idea of, of having an influence over our health and preventing disease from the neck down. Like we really, I think with heart health in particular, yeah. you know, like we know, oh, if I get in my number of steps, if I do this, that's like I'm preventing heart disease. I'm keeping my heart healthy. And you might be thinking this as a 25-year-old. Oh, I'm going to keep my heart healthy. Like, well, you weren't at risk really for a heart attack at 25. This is something you're actually preventing, you know, when you're in your 50s and 60s. And so one of the shifts that I and others are trying to make out there in, in the public is to start to think about having some influence over your health from the neck up. And like your heart, what you do is important for keeping your your brain and your memory healthy now and in the future. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. I love it. Um, it's making me sort of, like, the more it's funny as I was just sort of like prepping a little bit for this conversation through the conversation, it's really it got me in a reflective state of like, huh, you know what? I'm pretty solid, but I need to actually make all these things an even higher priority and not expect necessarily to feel some profound difference tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But just because I know this is like my daily maintenance, you know, this is what I have to do. Because I know I want to be around for a long time and I want yeah, to, there are things yeah. that I want to see and do and and people that I still want to be in relationship with and recognize down the road. Yeah. And Alzheimer's is not a fun price to yeah. pay for longevity. You know, like the average life expectancy in the U.S. was 47 in 1900. Wow. I know. So it it's like we've gained a massive number of years in longevity, but with that comes this really massive risk of Alzheimer's. And so- yeah, I mean, we don't want to, that shouldn't be the price that you have to pay. Like, well, I'm going to get to live 30 more years than I would have had I lived 100 years ago, but I'm going to go out right. not remembering anyone or anything that I've ever lived for. Yeah, who's who's the person who said it's not the number of years you live, it's the life in your years or something mm. like that. But, um, this feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So hanging out in the studio in the context of this thing called the Good Life Project, if I offer out the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Uh, um, to, to have the freedom to express the fully realized version of yourself, to be seen and heard, to love and be loved. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.